either we are there or not, ITSB Magazine still gets the best stories. There are plenty of conferences and all sorts of events that spark our curiosity and allow us to start conversations with some of the world's brightest minds. In person or virtually, we sit down with them at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Together, we discover what the synergy of these three elements means for the future of humanity. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open-source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at crowdsec.net. EdgeScan offers continuous vulnerability intelligence as a service, accurately identifying vulnerabilities and exposures across the full stack. All threats are verified by cybersecurity experts, providing exploitable risk and remediation guidance, virtually false positive free. Learn more at edgescan.com. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at www.pentera.io. Marco. Sean. How's it feel to be 25 again? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just said my uh, half of my life just went through you know, flashback. <laughs> I, I, I have great ideas for a movie, but you know, I'm going to let that there. <laughs> it's funny. We, uh, we share the same birth year. So I, I also flashed uh, half of my life back as well. You go. Um, but that, that's not the real question. The real question is what have we learned in 25 years and or maybe our 50 now, but uh, nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, maybe you and I personally haven't, but there are a lot of folks that gather in the sweltering hot desert of fabulous Las Vegas every year to uh, to learn from each other by uh, breaking things, sharing things, talking about things, and uh, and it's all part of Hackers Summer Camp, and uh, specifically that's Black Hat and DefCon the two, and there's a bunch of other. Uh, events taking place around there as well but there's a lot going on uh the first first uh, full week in august i guess it would be and uh i'm i don't know marco uh we we've had the honor of speaking with our guest previously uh leading up to some interesting times for uh, the u.s uh, political uh, system and uh he is the keynote speaker for this year's Black Hat. And I'm thrilled to have Chris Krebs on again. Chris, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. Sean, Marco, good to see you guys. Seems that you've weathered COVID okay. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll keep, let's keep our superlatives in check here. We've all changed, I think, a little bit over the last couple of years, but uh, looking good and good to be back with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and that, this time we... We're doing this traditional thing, which is the chats on the road. And uh, people know that usually we would actually be doing it from the road, like literally driving, <laughs> Sean and I. Yeah, uh, up, but up as to you 15 say, to Vegas from LA. Yeah. Not, 
Not right this moment. We're, we're sitting no. behind a screen still. That's right. So we, we like to start early and we like to catch up and, uh, and prepare people for what to expect once, once they get there. So you have this uh, keynote, which is all about what I love to talk, which is the past, the present, and the future. And as Sean mentioned, 25 years of uh, Black Hat. And uh, yeah, we, we, with you, we, we just want to see what, uh, what this presentation is going to be about and what's in your head. And when you, when you think back and you look at where we are now and you know, where we're going from here. Well, I, I'm actually more excited about the other keynote, the Thursday keynote that's Kim Zetter, who is one of the best, if not the best, investigative journalist out there right now on cybersecurity issues. Uh, of course, the you know she was the reporting force behind Stuxnet uh, in in her her book there. So she's she's going to have a great keynote. So everybody, make sure you check that one out as well. Um, but as I was talking to the the Black Hat team when they approached me, and Jeff Moss kind of called me out of the blue and said, "Hey, um, we're you know we're interested in talking to you about the the, the keynote. What are you what are you thinking?" and I, you know, honestly, I was first. I was kind of taken by surprise. I was like, "This is amazing! Uh, it's such an incredible opportunity to, to talk to this audience and and be up on that stage, uh, particularly when you know it seems like things are kind of getting back to normal." So it was certainly an honor. Uh, but they kind of casually dropped that this is this is Black Hat at twenty five, and and that's like, oh man, that's a that's a lot of pressure. That's that's you know, what are we <laughs> doing here? Are we summarizing? 25 years of, of history. And I, you know, as I was talking to, to Steve and, and Jeff, I was kind of reviewing, um, you know, what I do these days. And so what I do is I go out there and I talk to my peers, I talk to executives, talk to CISOs, talk to, you know, instant response teams. And I'm just trying to get a sense of what they are experiencing today and, and what have they seen in terms of the big changes, what were the kind of inflection points over the last several years that changed the way they've uh, they've behaved, they've been supported, they've been engaged, and and then I want to drive it a little bit forward, more forward, and I want to say where do we think we're going to be five years from now? Where do we think we're we're maybe going to be ten years from now? And trying to kind of get that that vibe check of are we going to be better? Are we going to be worse? And you know that sort of conversation actually doesn't particularly lead anywhere helpful. So trying to then decompose, all right, fine, five years out, 10 years out, better or worse. The more important aspect of this is what do we think those inflection points are going forward, those key decisions that government has to make, that industry has to make, that we as a community have to, to make. And can we start putting those up on the scoreboard and each commit? to making those happen. So that's a bit of what I want to dig into is what do we what do we think has changed dramatically in the last several years, but going forward, where do we think things are going and how do we shape that environment from from that from the, you know, the 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 Mandalay and in in Vegas and then once we break out of Vegas and get back into our our daily routines what is it that we have to kind of bring on to drive change? Because we've seen over the last 25 years that, that it's not going to happen on its own. 
that left to its own devices industry um, has kind of left us where we are, where we're picking up the pieces, where we're doing incident response, where we're pushing updates, we're pushing new products. So how can we flip that script? How can we engage? How can we uh, bootstrap uh, you know, everyone else? Because I think if, if, if the Russian invasion of Ukraine really showed us anything is that we're in a different world and technology is playing a central role in where the world's going, and we're kind of the frontline defenders there. Yeah, so so much to unpack in all that, Chris, and it's it's incredible you have all of this in your in your mind. Obviously, uh, you've you've spent a lot of time involved in this, and I'm going to go there in a second. But just the just the idea that I think the industry is driven by innovation, right? We're constantly exploring and and pushing the boundaries and and finding ways to break through them and then responding to the, the results that come because we've actually succeeded in breaking through those boundaries. And I'm interested in your thoughts um, of how we, and maybe I don't, I don't want to go here yet, but just how do we get to, do we, do we set the path where we want to go in 25 years or do we just end up somewhere? Um, but before we do that, I, w- I want to take us back 25 years ago. <laughs> what, what were you doing? 25 years ago. I knew you were going to ask this uh, in your intro. And I think 25 years ago, I was, I think I was in Atlanta. I think I was parking cars. I, I I valeted cars for, uh, to make a little jingle over the summer. And it's a, that's a great gig, right? I mean, it was, parking cars at Lenox Square Mall in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where, you know, the big shops are and all that. And tips were pretty good. And I'd get to, you know, clock about eight miles a day on 110 degree asphalt. So lots of exercise, you know, that, uh, you know, sweating it out. Uh, and and it, was a, it wasn't a bad way to do it uh, for the summer. And, you know, in, in the innocence of being a 20 year old. And, and hopefully the odd, uh, really cool car came through that you got to. I, you know, back then the cool car was the, uh, the Dodge Viper and got to drive, mm-hmm. drive one of those. And that was pretty sweet. Nice. You don't have to worry about autonomous car and, uh, <laughs> and safety or anything like that. Nope. That's, <laughs> and that's exactly. yeah. And, and that's kind of part of what we're going to have to talk about, you know, five years from now. And this is kind of one of the rhetorical devices I do when, when I, um, when I talk to folks, is close your eyes, put yourself five years into the future, and just think about, put yourself in your, in your living room, in your office, in your car. You're going to have more things that are dependent on connected technologies, connected devices. What about on your body, in your body? Just travel in general. It's, it's really, you, know, you talk about redefining security. It's just redefining way of life based on technology. And all that is is a tax surface. And are we really seeing the changes in software security, software safety that we would expect to keep pace with that acceleration of adoption of these technologies? And I think that's one of those things we really need to dig into. Are we, are we bringing those lines, those trend lines closer together? Or are they diverging? I think, I think we have the answer, but uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if everybody agrees or not, but um, so let, let me go back to my earlier point, Chris, because then, I know we're taking us to the future, but we can then kind of step it back to see how we actually get there. 
but do you see that we as an industry are able to kind of not just learn from inflection points like you described, but actually kind of steer toward them as we want to uh, with a particular outcome in mind so that we can say, here are the players, here are their roles, here are the actions they need to take, and that has to happen to arrive here. Now, we may not follow the exact path, but at least we have some idea where we want to go. Do you, do you think as an industry that we're capable of that? I think absolutely. I mean, screw 25 years. Think about 10 years back, right? Everybody put yourselves back to 2012. Think about where we were then and think about where we are now. You talk about as a community, we're innovators. The number of products that the vibrant cybersecurity marketplace that we see out there right now. Yes, it's pretty busy, pretty crowded. A little bit of consolidation in the market uh, might not be the worst thing in the world. But it's a, it's a much more robust security environment right now than it was in 2012. We have board briefings um, with executives and across the C-suite on a much regular frequency. We have executives that are more attuned to the issues that we care about. It's not just a you know, kid in a hoodie worried about these issues anymore. It, it's a much more aggressive and diverse group. Um, which which kind of plays into my overarching thesis, or at least my mindset, is that <clears throat> we're seeing improvement. We are absolutely seeing improvement. We're seeing the trend lines tick up. The, the real question is, um, like I already said, can it keep pace with just general technology adoption? But again, we're, we're seeing behaviors, we're seeing all the sort of indicators of, of success tick up and, and go the right way. One of the, the disadvantages, though, we have from where we are is that we can't necess- we don't necessarily at the level or level of impact, at least, on the technology adoption side, as I already talked about, we're, we're still lagging a little bit there. Moreover, um, we can't necessarily control the size of the attacker pool, right? That's what ultimately has been most concerning to me over the last several years, when you just let's let's just chop it off the last five years and talk about ransomware, um, the success that ransomware affiliates affiliates and operators have had is only encouraging more and more uh, folks to come into the community in safe harbors, at least into that pool of of bad actors. Because it's a quick buck, there haven't been historically, or at least until very recently, meaningful imposition of cost. Uh, so, so it's been a, it's been a pretty attractive racket for those folks. So, so again, adoptions up bad guy number, you know, headcount is up as well. So, you know, while we're making progress, we absolutely are, um, there, there are external factors outside of our control that, that are, that are not moving in, 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 at least in the direction that's our best interest. So I'm, uh, I know Marco's going to jump in here in a minute, but another Another thought from you, Chris, um, tapping into your experience both in public and private sector, um, and maybe the best way to put this is, is there anything that you're doing in your current role with the Krebs Stainless Group that that surprises you from a private sector perspective that maybe you thought was different in your role at CISA uh, in the, serving the public sector? Um, I, you know, I don't know if 
if there's necessarily anything that's that's that just shockingly or dramatically different than what we were doing. It says we are, you know, in a consulting capacity, um, you know, much more in the kind of the guts of companies and also working at higher levels with the C-suite of trying to understand strategy and roadmap and help them develop programs. We don't dig too deep into individual program implementation and monitoring, things like that. Um, I, I think what, what kind of surprises me the most is we, again, we talk about lessons learned. Um, you know, I felt as if not Petya <clears throat> really should have been a wake up call across industry broadly. And, you know, you saw broad segmentation across the globe, different geographies, high risk geos were segmented off the network, you had a much better understanding of who was coming in and out. And I've just seen time and time again that that pretty uh, universally still fairly flat global networks. And, and there's there are reasons for that, right? I mean, it's a, an efficient way of bringing the horsepower of a global workforce together. But if, if we've learned anything again in the last six months is that um, you know, there are bad actors out there that have significant capabilities that have the ability to reach globally. And, and as I think back to like 2016 and the Russians trying to muck around in the U.S. elections is we should have taken another lesson that the Internet has really shrunk the geographic distances between us. And so we have to think much, much deeper about how we, you know, the homeland is no longer a sanctuary. It's just kind of one way to think about it. And so how do we how do we take it upon ourselves, exhibit some corporate responsibility and make ourselves harder targets? And so that that's what we're doing a lot of right now is kind of bringing that geopolitical lens and understanding of what the SVR out of Russia, what the MSS out of China, what their priorities are, what their shopping lists are who they're going after and how organizations need to be thinking about themselves, not just as kind of random chaff on the battlefield, but instead potential hopping off points, particularly if they're shipping a product um, into a much broader set of targets um, where you're just kind of a waypoint on the adversary's uh, you know, mission. Well, let, let's stay right here because uh, I've been thinking about the, you, what, what you said pretty much, I mean, all the geopolitical situation that keep presenting themselves and uh, and how the, the world is so much smaller now, but also so much more complex because of this and how maybe it's time to really think in a proactive way instead of a reactive way. So strategizing seems to be the way to go, but it, it seems to me that it's really hard to put together different countries uh, that have different businesses in there. I mean, I think that's where we need to go, but how do you see that going? So one of the things that, that we're working through right now with a number of different organizations is <laughs> not everyone can, can accept the fact that or is able to from a market, um, a global market, a supply chain dependency, a sales perspective, is able to look at China as a flat-out adversary. They're, the Chinese government, the PRC, right? They, they have dependencies, they have R&D, they have all sorts of different um, reasons that it's just not realistic to cut off that 
country, that geography entirely. And that's, that's frankly why um, when we look back, I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it was, it was actually quite simple for organizations to say, you know, what, we're just going to cut off Russia. It, it, it's, a, it's a single digit, low single digit uh, percentage of revenue for most companies that operated global global revenue western companies operating in russia was quite quite small for most and so it was actually a fairly simple um decision and then um controlled shutdown plan now controlled shutdown plans is an entirely different discussion i think um in that i don't know of any companies that actually had a 72-hour controlled shutdown plan for an entire country the geographic size of russia and yet you saw hundreds of companies do that so there will be a wealth of lessons learned from that exercise alone. And so organizations really need to go back and say, hey, how did we do that? What did we miss? What were the technologies that, that we wish we would have had in place, like some sort of insider threat uh, detection program? Um, you know, how, did we, how are we tracking other threats? And then let's pull those lessons and then apply it forward to whatever the next geopolitical issue is. And in the, again, the basis that we're using, and this is, this is generally um, driven by recent announcements by the U.S. and U.K. intelligence services, when you've got the director of the FBI and the director of MI5 out of the U.K. shoulder to shoulder saying that China's the biggest threat right now, existential threat to, to the West, you know, pay attention, that, that means something. And so let's use that as a model. Let's say, hey, if China were to invade Taiwan, how would that affect us as an organization? How would that affect our supply chain? How would that affect our ability to service our customers? How would that affect our ability to continue to operate globally, understanding that, again, we're a SaaS product or we're shipping some sort of uh, hardware where that hardware product may be targeted or that software hosted service could be targeted as a jumping off point. That's how organizations need to be thinking about the world right now. And you have time, right? It, it's not going to happen tomorrow. So if I learned anything in my CISA days, it's that when you have time in front of you, use it wisely. Don't just think about the fires you're putting out today because everybody's patching the latest thing. But think about where you want to be five years into the future. And if you have an extra hour in your day or 30 minutes in your, in your week or whatever, Use that time to do some scenario planning, to work through some worst case scenarios, and make sure that you're able to put yourself in a, in a better position down the road. And that was the entire mindset around the CISA motto, defend today, secure tomorrow. You have to have these two different mental time horizons that you can maintain at any given time to ensure that you're not constantly putting out today's fires. Make your life easier a little bit uh, in the future, so you're not sitting there going, you know what? Damn it, we should have we should have known. We yeah, this was obvious. You can identify some of those things. They're always going to be whatever we want to call them, black swans or whatever. But you've got the ability, you've got creativities on your team, creativity uh, on your team. Use that to your advantage. Yeah, and I think the big lesson too that we've seen is you work together. And that's something that CISA, you guys have been doing great to establish relationship between the public and the private sector and the hacking community and, and all the one that comes together uh, now. Because, of course, you can't predict everything, but if you work together, right. it's, uh, it's pretty nice. So let, let's go back to your keynote. And, you know, we, we say, you know, Black Hat at 25, where do we go from here? Who... 
do you expect to come to see your presentation uh, virtually or in person? And, and what, what do you hope they get from it? Well, you know, in terms of the audience, I can't always... Uh, Everyone. I can't, right. I can't, I can't always influence who's going to show up there. This is kind of dependent upon who, who wants to be there. But, I, you know, I think it, it's, it's intended to land with a broad range of folks from government, from industry, from the research community, academia, and, and beyond. But it's also targeted for a range of different uh, levels of uh, within an organization from executives. Um, so, you know, whether it's a, a CISO or a CEO or even someone that, that's an advisor or a board member to help them think about as a decision maker and as, as, a, as someone that sets agendas, how should we be thinking about the next couple of years? Uh, you know, move it down to the CISO and within the CISO shop. How do we play within an organization and how do we talk up? How do we manage up? How do we let our leadership be, uh, you know, put them in a position to be successful? And then throughout the community, um, you know, what are some of the, the, the things we need to do to, to have a more inclusive workforce? How do we bring more people in? Because it's not just about the policy, policy decisions. It's, it's this, is a, this is a really exciting field to work in. It's a complete bear right now. I mean, it's hard slogging work at times. Incident response in particular, we've been shields up now for seven months or whatever it's been. Uh, so those are the sorts of things that, that you know, I want to talk about how we, you know, maintain or keep our wits about us, how we bring more people in. But again, this is fun. This is a great place to work. There's a whole lot of job security. You talk about, um, you know, Black Hat at 25. Think about Black Hat at 50, how big this thing is going to be and how many people are going to be there. This is an unfortunate reality of where we are in terms of technology dependency, um, this ain't going away. The risk piece is not going away. We're not going to solve it with some magic code. Uh, there's always going to have to be someone that's that's watching, you know, that watcher on the wall, and that's keeping an eye out, that's responding, uh, and and generally making uh, making the world a better place, better, safer place to live. So, Chris, you you're going to be surrounded by a tremendous amount of talent in that audience. And, and then around the halls and everything else as you're coming and leaving the, uh, the, the stage there. And uh, I presume people will be swarming to ask you questions afterwards. You mentioned earlier that talent was one of the things that, that uh, I don't know if you used the word troubled uh, you most, but certainly it's top of mind. And I'm wondering if there are either lessons learned perhaps that you can touch on and or maybe a view for the future of how we how we overcome some of the challenges with respect to attracting and retaining and keeping yeah. healthy the, the talent that we need. Well, there was just recently a, uh, an event here at the White House in D.C. Um, led by the National Cyber Director, Chris Inglis, talking about the, the cyber workforce challenges. And I, you know, I look at events like that and think, A, they're positive. They bring the community together. Um, they, they set out some good goals. You get commitments from large organizations, you know, you know Microsoft and Amazon. You know, all these companies are there that, that have the budgets. They have the, the demand that they can create. And then you also have, have academia. But 
But to the broader workforce challenge, I mean, it's not just at the higher end. I mean, we need to get technology uh, savvy folks out into state capitals, you know, and not every state capital is Atlanta, Georgia, which tends to be a bit of a, a tech hub or Austin, Texas, right? You've got uh, Albany, New York. You've got places that are, are much more rural. And so how do we create a technology workforce that's distributed? And, you know, just like we're, we're sitting here in our respective houses, um, you know, that's, that's an okay thing. We don't necessarily need the bricks and mortar. So uh, we've got to make these jobs more accessible. Uh, you know, I just today um, hopped on a, a meet and greet Zoom with, with a new hire that's in Olympia, Washington. And it's almost like as, as far as you can go within the United States, uh, between two points, and we're still working together, collaborating in in real time. So one of the things that we have to think about, and I, some of the Aspen Institute work I did previously, is to really think about bringing the HR teams where you have an HR team into your job rec and hiring process. Um, <clears throat> you know, kind of left to their own devices, they may go out there and grab uh, a job description off of you know some site that's a couple years old and super high spec and then updated with you know rust or something that that there's not a whole lot of expertise and experience out there or at least it's developing so so we really need to be thinking much more reasonably and practically about um you know about the types of people we need let's drop let's not over spec uh you know i look at this internally and the demand for certifications the years in the job uh, four-year degrees, uh, graduate degrees, all those things are, are you know, maybe requirements in government, even though they're shifting away from that. But for us, it's more about competence. I mean, I've, I've had folks come in and work for us that weren't even college grads um, and then absolutely crushed it. And we're, we're developing on the fly really um, useful tools for our clients. And, you know, yes, I'm cheating and by referencing uh, Jack Cable here, but, you know, there are a bunch of Jack Cables out there that that we have to uh, provide opportunities and bring them up and then mentor them and then put them in a position to be the leaders of the future. Um, I think kind of relatedly is, you know, we have a lot of kind of upskilling that has to happen um, across our, our leadership space. So I think about the decision makers that are in government right now, whether they're on the Hill in Congress or in influential positions in uh, in the executive branch. And in fact, that was a little bit of maybe my secret of success as, as CISA director was not that I'd come in there and throw fastballs on the technical side, but that I would listen to the technical teams. I would translate the things they're trying to get across uh, and then put it in terms of it, you know, how to talk to an executive, how to get them to understand and then get them to act in our, in our way. So we need, we need those translators and we ultimately have to put the decision makers in a, in a, uh, in a place to be, uh, in a place to be successful. Um, I'd also suggest that, that movement in and out of government is, is not a bad thing. You know, we, we hear a lot about, um, particularly in DC, the re revolving door, but from CISA where I was, I was I was all, always encouraged when uh, members of the CISA team were hired by tech companies or someone else to go run um, an, uh, an IT security shop because it meant that they knew how to work with CISA. 
they knew the value that CISA added and that they were kind of, they were part of the tribe. And so when they go out, they, they have an affinity naturally to come back and, and work with CISA. And that's in fact, one of the benefits I think, or the advantages that the FBI has over places like CISA and the federal government, because they have this long, uh, long-standing alumni network. CISA doesn't necessarily have that. We're growing that. Um, but, but again, I would go hire government um, employees because it's a, you know, you get someone that's, that's had a pretty, you know, well-funded training regime and uh, they're, they're quite capable and they know how to, they know how to work, you know, between industry and government. And then hopefully they'll, they'll have some great deal of success. They'll make some sweet venture deal uh, or some big bet and become generationally wealthy. And then they'll want to come back into government and because mission, mission drives a lot of, a lot of people. So, and then the last thing I, I think I'll say, and, and this is what's been driving, you know, I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of years, because as I was, as I think back to the summer of 2020 and just how active the Russian FSB and the Iranians were here in the U.S., I was concerned at the time that we were going to see kind of like a, a instant response or government denial of service where there was so much noise out there. And we were running from IR to IR to IR that we were just going to keel over or we were going to be so distracted and the noise level was so high, we couldn't parse out the signal. So it's, it's becoming crystal clear, I think, that leaders within security teams, you have to force rest. You have to force an, a, a battle rhythm that gives the team time to recuperate, recharge, maybe go rotate somewhere else, uh, have some time on the beach, basically. Let them get into their headspace, uh, into the right headspace, so they're not, they, they don't get in a position where they collapse, because those, those sorts of events are uh, hard to recover from. And, and we have seen, unfortunately, I think, a number of folks leave, leave the industry over the last year or so, because it's just, it's such a crush. So we got to support them. We've got to be able to identify those those uh, moments of crisis early on, and and just be a much broader support network. And I've seen that be highly, highly successful um, because there, this is a, I think, fundamentally supportive uh, community. Yeah, absolutely. And and the whole concept of employee experience, I think, it's been connected to the pandemic and then the Great Resignation and. But employee experience is real and it's broad and it's beyond the pandemic and it's beyond being being able to work from home or not. It, it's things like burnout and satisfaction. And are you are you achieving the mission that that makes you burn every day and wake up in the morning and, and want to go to work or are you stuck doing something that that totally sucks? <laughs> so that experience, which is also connected to ESG, social governance, and, and which then connects to resiliency. And it's a full circle, right? If your people are burnt out and they don't, they're not yep. happy, and it ultimately comes down to resiliency as well. And um, I think there's a lot we can learn from the past. And it's, and it's certainly, yeah. yeah, and it's certainly easier said than done, Absolutely. right? But it is part of that broader commitment to, particularly as you become, you know, leaders in management, uh, it's not just about all the time, time on, you know, hands on keyboard. Uh, it is looking at your team, seeing who might be uh, in stress, providing them the support they need. And sometimes that means you, you kind of work with them to find something else. Um, 
but it's 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 the flexibility and optionality uh, in engaging when you have to. Yep. Yeah, doing nothing because it's hard isn't the right answer. But talking about experience and a great one, your keynote um, on August 10th. It's at 9 a.m. local time there in Las Vegas. Uh, Black Hat at 25. Where do we go from here? I'm excited to uh, to experience that with you, Chris, and uh, can't wait to hear all the all the nuggets you bring and the stories you have to share and and to experience the audience as they as they also kind of twitch their head and go that 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 happened yes and we can learn from that yes here's what i'm going to take with me as i leave vegas and uh, and do something different well i'm, I'm really excited too and and I, i'm going to say something because as you're really fascinating the way that you presented this whole thing is it's a little bit technical is a little bit political is a little bit sociological I, I just love the wide view that you have and so i had this thought and i'm like did you actually actually happen to park at delorean back in uh, 25 <laughs> years ago and you, you kind of went 25 years before <laughs> then 25 years in the future you've been cheating you really have this That's clear right. vision you, i'm you know uh... you drove back then no, I'm not. I'm not Dave Kennedy. I don't. I don't have a, a DeLorean. Um, I. Uh, I look. I think that we are at a point in this community where we are as important as any other function in society in the business world. Uh, we're not just the techie nerds sitting sitting there in the in the you know the basement room. Um, we're, we're really part of the fabric of society and driving society forward. And so it takes a much broader skill set. And we all have those, I think. So, uh, you know, part of really where, again, I think my secret to success in CISA and, and before was of, of bridge building and building community and taking disparate voices and folding them all together into establishing narratives, driving us us for progress. I think part of it is I'm a middle child and I'm always looking for compromise and, you know, I hate it when everybody fights. So let's, let's figure out what success looks like. And, and so again, you know, just a little bit of a, a sneak preview. Um, but a lot of my keynote is going to be based on conversations that I've had with other people, other thought leaders, um, or actual true, really thought leaders people that are really technically proficient, people that are hands-on keyboard in IRs all day long, policymakers, try to blend it all together so, so it, it's this kind of mosaic of perspectives um, because no one single person has all the answers right now. It really will take a team to get us where we need to be. And so we, we need to have those voices and package them up and, and put them out there. And so that's, that's again, that's what I'm trying to accomplish here um, in a couple weeks in Black Hat. Big nice. lesson well, right there. I have the answer. <laughs> what is it, John? It's 42. Start, it's 42. 42, exactly. And that's the code to get into your keynote session because I honestly believe that the, the learnings that will come from that session are going to be incredible. And, um, yeah, I want to thank you, Chris, for, uh, for joining us again here on the show. And uh, congratulations on the keynotes. I'm looking forward to yours and Kim Zetter's. Uh, I mean, two very different perspectives, a lot of, lot of information coming from both of you. And I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of our Chats on the Road to uh, Hacker Summer Camp, Black Hat and DEF CON. 
lots of stuff coming up. If you missed the uh, the kickoff with Steve Wiley, uh, that's available, and uh, lots more lots more conversations uh, around threats and security and privacy and meet multimedia and misinformation, everything under the sun that's happening at the two events in Las Vegas. Thanks, everybody. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at www.pentera.io. EdgeScan offers continuous vulnerability intelligence as a service, accurately identifying vulnerabilities and exposures across the full stack. All threats are verified by cybersecurity experts, providing exploitable risk and remediation guidance, virtually false positive free. Learn more at edgescan.com. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at crowdsec.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our On Location Conversation. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.